Good morning. It's a joy, as usual, to be here worshiping with you at Christ the King this morning. We resume in the book of Acts in chapter 26 at verse 19, where Eric left off. And undoubtedly, as he mentioned, this is a familiar passage because it's Paul's third retelling of his conversion experience. But this is also the climax of Paul's defense of himself as he's put on trial. He's been beaten, imprisoned, stoned, and arrested and stood before a multitude of different councils and courts. In the book of Acts, though, this is the highest authority before which we have an account of him standing. It's not an official trial, but it is the highest authority as they're gathered in all of their pomp and um, splendor. And as is described at the book of, uh, end of chapter 25, uh, the question before them is what exactly are they going to write to Rome? Paul has made his appeal to Caesar, and so they have to send him up with a written report. This is part of why Agrippa here is so keen to get it right, to hear Paul's side of the story. And I think we should keep that in mind because what Paul is sharing, he believes is relevant to his defense before the Roman government. This is his official statement. It began in the first half, as Eric read, with what happened to him, how Christ called him, converted him, and commissioned him for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. And here we resume with his response to the Lord. And also, we see the response that his audience has to him. With that, I want to turn now again to God's word. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word, how you've given it to us through the prophets and the apostles. And we pray that you would be with us by your spirit as we meditate upon it this morning. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, that you would make clear upon us the joys of the gospel, the hope we have in you, and the call that you place upon our lives. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What we have in our passage here this morning is a beautifully succinct and inspired defense of the faith according to the Apostle Paul. It's an account of what the risen Lord Jesus had done in his life, how he had been called and converted, turned from an enemy of the Lord into one of its foremost servants, a prisoner for the mission of God. It's Paul's testimony, a clear witness to the gospel and to the power of the risen Lord Christ. As we examine this text today then, we're confronted with Paul's claims and with the charge that he sets forth. In this third retelling of Paul's conversion, Paul emphasizes that it is the risen Christ who has appeared to him. It is the risen Christ who witnesses to him from heaven in authority to convert and commission Paul. Paul's life after this confrontation has to be different. Paul's conversion Paul emphasizes that it is the resurrected Christ and his life is then characterized by his witness to this resurrected Lord as he confronts all people with the hope of the gospel. Paul's desire, as we see here at the end, is also clear. He wants everyone, great or small, to be such as he is, to know the hope of God's promises to be confronted with the light of who Jesus is, and to be bound in new life with Christ to repentance and to proclaim with joy that Christ is Lord. What Paul is giving us a glimpse of here is the power of resurrection life. The power that the resurrection has to transform lives just as it transformed his. What else? could account for his witness? What else could account for his defense of the faith, for his testimony? It's the resurrection life of Christ that compels Paul to embrace Jesus. And it's this same resurrection life that he wants everyone around him to share in. Whether short or long, he says, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day become such as I am. Whether short or long, whether this is your first time hearing the gospel, as we sung a few times ago, uh, a a few moments ago, whether you're one of those ones who knows it the best, this is the charge and the hope that Paul confronts us with. That they might receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Part of why it's such a joy to be in this passage with you this morning is because how my wife Hattie and I have been encouraged by and gotten to experience your witness as a church to our resurrected Lord. 
in worshiping with you, we've gotten to know the joy and rest that it is to worship alongside God's people. In your service to us, you've ministered to us faithfully, assisted us through hard times. And in our time spent together, we've gotten to see and admire many of you who so diligently and pursue, diligently pursue and love the Lord. We've gotten to see how many of y'all truly desire to reflect the image of Christ in your lives. So this morning then, I share out of appreciation. I share it out of appreciation uh, because of how y'all have pointed me and Hattie towards Christ, but I also want to share it as an encouragement. I want to share it as an encouragement because so often, as we seek to proclaim the gospel, it is easy to be discouraged. And yet, we still have this duty to proclaim the light of the gospel to those around us. And we ourselves need to be reminded afresh of the hope that we have and the promises of Christ. Whether short or long then, whether you've been here decades or have simply joined us for the first time this Sunday, I would to God that all of us who hear God's word today would be such as Paul is, compelled by the love of Christ to proclaim how we've been redeemed and transformed by the resurrection life that he gives. Coming to this passage, I think it's worth beginning by asking the seemingly obvious question, why is Paul on trial? Why is he in the position at all of needing to defend himself? If you've read Acts recently, then you know that the answer is largely plain. It's because enemies of the gospel would pursue him and seek to put a stop to what he's doing. People are upset about what he's doing, the things he's claiming about the way. But that isn't the only factor at work. We shouldn't forget that this is in fulfillment of the promises of Christ in Luke chapter 22 when he tells his disciples, they will lay their hands on you. And then you shall know they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. As Paul stands before Agrippa, he almost certainly has this in mind. And as these people are convened to hear his side of the story, this is in large part why Paul isn't anxious about what's taking place. Agrippa may be the one to give Paul permission to speak. He may be the one to give Paul permission to speak. Paul sees this for what it is, a fulfillment of the promises of the Lord, what Christ foretold for his followers. This is why he can even say that he considers himself fortunate. He considers himself fortunate as he's on trial. And these circumstances, as hard as they are, are put are in Paul's case an opportunity that the Lord has put before him to proclaim hope even in the face of adversity. Paul, knowing his innocence, can then stand trial without anxiety because he knows who the true judge is. His status before Caesar and the authority of the Roman government is secondary to his status and his standing before the Lord of glory the creator of all things. Even as he stands before this assembly, a prisoner bound in chains, 
He can do so with dignity, certainty, and with resolve in his mission. He is the one who is bound, but what Luke wants us to see here is the irony of Paul's captivity. He has the greater commission, the greater authority, and even here, the Lord is fulfilling his purposes. Paul may speak at the permission of Agrippa, but ultimately, even as he stands there unjustly accused, he knows that he's speaking in this moment according to the providence of God and fulfillment of Christ's promises. Paul clearly attributes this to the Lord in verse 6 when he says that he's on trial because of his hope and the promise made by God to our fathers. Rhetorically, there's a sense in which Paul is trying to show that his beliefs are not anything new. He's not starting a new religion. Instead, what he's proclaiming is fully in line with God's promises to his people throughout all history. The Lord would send a savior. God would renew his creation, bring about a second exodus, restore his people to their land, and bring about resurrection life. It's in line with the promises that we see in Ezekiel chapter 37. And you shall know that I, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This was the promise of the Lord, and it was also what informed Paul's understanding of Christ's work. The beginning of this resurrection life and the promise of the future started when Christ rose from the dead. But why then should Paul be put on trial? Why should he be put on trial for the, this God fulfilling his promises, for God's faithfulness? That's exactly the absurdity that I think Paul wants everyone to see. Paul challenges them. Isn't Christ's resurrection more in line with God's character? Isn't this more in line with his revealed promises as he's made himself known in his word? Paul recognizes how divisive the resurrection is, how absurd it may sound, but however improbable it may be, the more outlandish assertion would be that God would forget his promises to his people. Paul's first line of defense as he stands before this court then is God's character as he's revealed himself in his word. That is the ground of Paul's claim. But in connection with this, Paul would also add his own testimony as a witness to the truth of the gospel. That Christ has risen from the dead. What else could account for the transformation of his life? In verse 9, he talks about how Christ's resurrection was precisely what he had fought so hard to deny and suppress. As a Pharisee, the strictest, the most precise of the Jews. He did all that he could to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He was the one who locked up saints according to the authority that he had been given by the chief priests. But 
He then moved forward. He put believers to death, tried to make them denounce the faith, blaspheme against Christ, and pursued them in raging fury. God, though, had other plans for Paul's life. How does someone like this do a complete 180? How does an enemy of the gospel become one of its chief proponents? For Paul, this educated and pious man, this was not through subtle reasoning or through being gradually convinced. Instead, the risen Christ, the Lord of glory, appeared to him. As you well know, he appeared at midday, a blinding light appearing before Paul, and all those around him who witnessed this fell down at the power of it. The vision of Christ here ought to bring to mind, though, some other passages in Scripture. In Exodus 3, when the Lord appeared to Moses, he similarly called out to him, Moses, Moses. He presented himself to Moses as the God of Abraham and Isaac, and he also then commissioned him to go to Pharaoh to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And make no mistake, just like the call of Moses, the call of Jeremiah, the call of Isaiah, Paul here is describing his ministry as the duty that's been appointed to him by the risen Christ. Paul is saying that Jesus is God. And Paul is also saying that he was called out of his rebellion and rage to testify to this resurrected Savior. Paul is sent like a prophet of the Old Testament, and he is sent on authority from heaven by Christ who sits on his throne. This is critical to point out. Both because it's a reminder of how the apostles, Paul included, serve as a foundation for the people of God in the special tasks that they were given and as they, how God was at work through them to give us his word. But I also think it needs pointing out as this passage deals so centrally with what it means to bear witness to Christ and how the shape of our own lives ought to point towards him. The way many read this and have heard others' testimonies, it can make it tempting, I think. It can make it tempting to think that we need an experience like Paul's to have a valid conversion, to have certainty of Christ's work in our lives. Conversion, we think all too often, looks like some sort of undeniable, tangible religious experience. But Paul gives a different picture as he describes his own commission. In verse 17, Christ sends Paul to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive the forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The power of this statement, the power at work in the resurrection isn't determined by the events of Paul's experience. The power at work in Paul's conversion, just as in any other conversion, is the power of Christ. While the Lord may use different means, and even ordinary means, to bring many to himself, the content of this life is the same as the content of this light that we see in this passage. The light is still the same. While the, uh, and while you may not be struck down by this light of Christ, 
as we open God's word today, it still confronts you and it compels you to respond in the same manner that Paul did. It compels you to respond in repentance. And in this, we see that Paul's conversion isn't a singular event. It isn't just a single occasion or experience. It's a new mode of life as he's renewed in his whole being after the image of Christ. Witnessing Christ demanded that Paul become a witness of Christ. Paul could not go on living the same way. Christ appearing to him demanded his obedience. And it's this obedience, this conversion, this faith, repentance, and hope that all Christians share as they share in the risen Lord Christ himself. This new way of life then comes only as we share in the new life of our risen Lord. No matter how small or great, what else but the work of God could account for the transformation of sinners and rebels into children of God and heirs of the promise? Just as much as the heavenly light that Paul witnessed, this is the power of God put on display in the hearts and lives of believers, made alive together in Christ. While not all believers share in Paul's unique apostolic authority, we all do, in as much as we share in the same hope, the same spirit, the same Savior, share in this same transformation, share in the same resurrection life. Paul's conversion serves as a demonstration of what is always at work when sinners come to know and love the Lord. The obstacles are always the same. And we see this pattern inform Paul's letter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he states that for those to whom the gospel is veiled, the God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the light that now confronts us as we come to God's word. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But just like it can hurt our eyes when we step out of a darkened room into broad sunlight. It can feel harsh and uncomfortable to encounter the light of God's word. It can overwhelm us and expose us. But you also can't pretend that it isn't there. It demands a response. Paul, in response to his encounter then, is conscripted by what he is able to see to proclaim this news to others, and in particular, to proclaim it to Gentiles to the nations. This, too, is in fulfillment of God's promises, as you see in the passage on the front of your bulletin, Isaiah 49. God was making his servant, just like he made Christ, as a light to the nations, to proclaim his salvation to the ends of the earth. 
brothers and sisters, most of us are gathered here today because God was faithful to this promise. We, as the nations, have been brought into this same light, and in the light of this gospel, we too must respond. We must respond to proclaim the glories of our risen King. And that is why we are here today. We are called to repent and to turn to our gracious and merciful Father, performing deeds in keeping with our repentance. The witness of our transformed lives, our defense of the faith, is, just like Paul's, linked with new life and the light of Jesus. Our lives, like Paul's, serve to reflect this light as we are restored to the image of God after Jesus. Now this repentance, Paul says, verse 21, is why he's been seized and why people want to kill him. Paul's accusers feel the same sense of rage that he used to at the gospel. They feel a unique sense of betrayal, though, since Paul's repentance from his past sins serves as a particular condemnation of their own past rebellions and sins against God since he did it by their authority. Paul, though, is once again asserting that what he preaches is not out of line with the word of God. They are the ones who have failed to see in Christ the fulfillment of Moses and the prophets. Repentance, though, involves an ongoing radical departure from our former ways. And this demand of the gospel, even and especially as it is a fulfillment of God's promises and a restoration to relationship with Him, is a hard pill to swallow. So often for us, we as sinners like our sin. We like our rebellion. And it's hard to change course, to accept something that requires so much change. This is one of the main obstacles to the acceptance of the gospel that we face. And we see two different versions of this sort of response in our passage here. And these are responses that we can still see today, too. First, at the mention of the resurrection, Festus can hardly control himself any longer. He has to interrupt. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your learning has driven you mad. How could anyone really believe that a man rose from the dead? He tries to dismiss the claims as ridiculous. Dismiss Paul's logic as madness. The cross, as 1 Corinthians 1 assures us, is foolishness to the wise. Even though Festus is listening to who he knows to be a brilliant man, it sounds like folly. And we ourselves shouldn't expect this to change as we proclaim this same gospel. Because of what the gospel demands, it's easier, it's more natural to write it off as foolishness. It's too great a claim to be received. It's easier in our own wisdom to look for reasons to not accept these truths. To not accept that Jesus is Lord, that the Christ has been raised from the dead. But God uses even the folly of what we preach 
to save those who believe. This is why Paul feels no need to defend himself, no need to defend his own intelligence. He can simply and calmly say, I'm not out of my mind. Even if you think what I'm saying is crazy, these things are true and rational. The resurrection is not a matter of mere probability. What events, it's not a matter of what events are likely. It's about what God has actually done in Christ. And Agrippa knows this to be true. Powerfully and boldly, Paul then returns to the second person. He says, I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped your notice. For this has not been done in a quarter, corner. I think we need to let that sink in for a moment. The redemption that God has worked out in history through his son is not a hidden knowledge. It isn't some secret thing that we enter into by our own attaining to wisdom, by our own reason. The gospel is the mystery of God revealed in the person and work of Christ as it is witnessed in his resurrection. It's not hidden in a corner. It is revealed in his word. God's work is known and his word is clear. And with that, Paul turns to Agrippa with a simple question. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. What Paul wants him to admit is that if you do believe the Old Testament, if you believe the prophets, you need to take those beliefs and follow them to their logical conclusions. If God is who he says he is, who he's revealed himself to be, what do you, Agrippa, believe? What do you believe? And what do you here believe today? Again, reason is hardly the main stumbling block. And we see that as Agrippa is, is trapped. He can't simply say no to Paul. If he says no, he would alienate his Jewish, Jewish subjects. But if he says yes, he's at risk of following Paul down this logical track that he doesn't want to go down. So instead, in verse 28, he cleverly evades the question. Do you really think that it's going to work on me in such a short time? And a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? I see what you're trying to do here, Paul. And it's not going to work. I want to draw attention to the fact that this is only the second time in the book of Acts that the name Christian is used. Little Christ. It's, it's not a common way of referring to Christians yet. And it seems pretty clear that Agrippa means this ironically. But as with so many other statements we get from people who have not yet embraced the gospel, it means more than he understands yet. In such a short time, could someone be brought to the knowledge of Christ? Could they be converted, be confronted by the light and the knowledge of his glory? In such a short time, could someone come to bear the image of Christ and be known as a little Christ, as a Christian? 
Paul knows, even as he made his case, that persuasion takes him so far. His responsibility and his commission from the Lord is to proclaim the hope of the gospel, to proclaim Christ's resurrection, the power of God for salvation. But he still knows that salvation belongs to Christ. Brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, that is the beauty of Paul's statement here. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. His desire is that the witness of Christ's resurrection would transform lives. That God's call on their lives would be effective, that they would live into this hope, that they would repent and turn to God, and likewise, that they themselves would testify to the truth of the gospel. At his core, Paul recognizes that the power of the gospel is in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Time is not the obstacle. Reason is not the obstacle. Christ has the power to transform even the most unlikely of sinners into a servant in the blink of an eye. Why not here too? Why not in the smallest of interactions and even in the longest, in the most seemingly hopeless of cases? Whether short or long, was not an obstacle for Jesus then, and it isn't now. We have in this passage a clear call to faith and repentance that demands a response of all. Do you believe these things? Will you proclaim these things? Will your life stand as a witness to the power of the resurrection life that Christ offers you? All of this is in the hope and the promises made by God that we may receive resurrection life, forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. Whether short or long in your labors and in your witness then, don't lose this hope. The Lord Jesus calls sinners like Paul, like you, like me. This is the power of the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's Christ's desire to put it on full display in the witness of his people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are in glory and seated on your throne, that you have redeemed us in Christ, you have called us to yourself, and you have not left us without witness. We thank you for this word, and we pray that you would embolden us, strengthen us by your spirit to bear more faithful witness to you in the world. Whether short or long in our interactions, we pray that you would help us to live into the responsibilities you give us to proclaim your word, but also, Lord, that we would do that in the hope, knowing the ways in which you are at work in our own lives and in the lives of others. 
Father, we thank you for the encouragement it is to have the witness of your people, the church. And we pray that you would strengthen us to these tasks as we go out from here this week. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.